Um, the other thing was besides the, the around the fire and hearing the, the, the verses and what, what they are mean to and how they are strengthened by the word of God. Um, <coughs> there's a nine-year-old young lady that has become quite the fire starter here since I've been here. <coughs> and I was a little surprised this morning when we were getting the fire going. I, I told her that we're going to start the fire again. There's a reason I have. My wife uh, uh, has always seems to be cold no matter what the temperature is. And so I'd like to get the fire going for her. And, and so I said, I'm going to go grab some wood and, and uh, we'll get the fire going. And so I headed out the door and I headed out the path and Mia didn't come. So I thought, well, that's interesting. I said, okay, that's all right. I'll go down there and get some wood. I get about halfway down there and I hear this. <laughs> and I wasn't sure what it was. And I turn around, and it's Mia. And I say, Mia, you are such a hard worker. I appreciate that. I know, she says. Okay, so <laughs> so, um, so I, I, I've really enjoyed our time here. A lot of love and laughter and prayer, encouragement for each other. And it's been a real blessing. Um, we happen to have this uh, providential connection uh, with Brandon and Angie, and it's been funny. We laugh about it, how it's all worked out. We, you know, Brandon gets a kick out of the girls, the ladies, word games they play, but just, just whatever it is. I get a kick out of uh, Kayla and what's her name, and uh, <coughs> and um, it, we, uh, it's just been, you know, you think about this world that we live in. It's heartache and hard and difficult and trials, and we're in this world but not of this world, but yet he gives us the body of Christ. And in there is that joy and that laughter and that encouragement. And so when we think on our theme of unity in Christ, we have to think about how do we get there? And because you, you know from your pastor and you know from me, I, we're driven by the word. We're driven by the text. And what drives the theme for what we're going to be looking at is Ephesians chapter 4. So... We got the wrong slide up there, so he's got to put the other one up there when he comes back. Um, what, drives, what drives the theme of living by faith, growing in grace, and walking in love is Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, we'll see if, I don't know if we'll find it there. I sent it to him, so we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, and in Ephesians chapter 4, so we're talking about unity, and we're talking about those three themes. Where do we see that? Ephesians chapter 4, verse Number one, two, and three. They're very clear there. I sent him. If he doesn't get it, we'll, we'll pull it back up and we'll call it and we'll see if we can find it. Okay, so if you're in Ephesians, you'll see it pretty quickly. Verses one, two, and three says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. There is that word, that urge, the, that, that, that stimulate, to, to, that passion. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So you can see it. It's all there. So he's basically saying very clearly, you live by faith, walk in a worthy manner. You grow in grace because you have this humility and gentleness and patience and bearing each other's burdens. That requires grace. We can't do it without our Savior. He must be in us and with us. And then this issue of walking in love, it's very clear. He says, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity 
of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So when we think about this, these, these themes of unity, this is where we start. And today, we finish up this walking in love. And the question has to be, is, as we walk in love, what prevents that from happening in our church, in our families? What prevents that from happening? I can tell you what prevents it from happening. Trials, tribulations, heartache, disappointments, sin, selfishness. But how do we walk in love? How do I, how do I persevere through trials? How do I come along someone who's hurt my feelings or slandered me or done something that would cause me to be angry? How, how, do, I, how do I walk in love? I, I think that's a question we all have. And I think we almost have to go back to James chapter 1, and we'll be looking at these verses, first four verses. We have to go back there. And when we do go back there, he's going to tell us, for us to walk in love, you got to connect this with me, there has to be joy. And it doesn't make, it's not hard to think about. Just think about this for a moment. And I've walked, and you've seen it. You're walking down somewhere, and you see somebody, and, hi, have a nice day. What's so nice about today? Okay, uh, <clears throat> You know, or you see something else about the grocery store or anything. Here, can I help you with this cart? You don't need any help. Okay, sorry, you know. But if there's, if there's that joy there, sure. Can I help you? Can I serve that for you? Uh, pull on the side of the road. Someone has a flat tire. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can I help you? Can I do something for you? Oh, that would be great. You're the first person. So I'm glad to do it. When we walk in love, there has to be joy. And we're going to be talking about this in a little bit. Bingo. Thank you. We're going to be talking about this, but the problem that we're that I'm seeing in the church today. Are you going to advance or not? Okay. All right. Well, we'll leave that up there. We'll see what happens next. Technology is great if it works, and if it doesn't work, well, that's a challenge. The problem you're seeing that people are connected with happiness, because what and we'll talk about what this happiness is. Some people say, some, some theologians have this discussion, there's, you're, 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 you're straining at gnats. I thank you. And the reality of it is, happiness is what you see in around you. I got a new car. I got a new sweater. Uh, I had, that, that was a delicious muffin that we had this morning. Whatever, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if your joy is not grounded in the eternal, then you will always be going from one temporal happiness thing to another that car that you love so much and everything else and now it's scrap heap somewhere that food that you ate this morning it's you forgot about it already you're finding that there and that is not the joy the joy of the lord is your strength the joy of the lord will set you free the joy of the lord will give you that passion that desire no matter what god brings your way can imagine something's weirdest thing called like a COVID or something, it, it, whatever, and you wear masks and all that. If, if that comes your way, that's all right. I'm still joyful because I know my God's in heaven and he's doing whatever he pleases and I'm not surprised by all that. So God, do what your work and I'm trusting in you because that joy is based on the eternal and that's what we're going to be talking about then. Then how do I, 
how do I have that? Now, there's a lead up to this that you need to see because you can't get there without this lead up. If you're not walking and if you're not living in faith, you, you're not going to get there. I can't communicate this to you. It's not something that we can strive or something I can give you the, you know, the kick on the seat of learning for the Board of Education. It's not going to work. So the first thing we are to see is we live by faith. And, how, well, you know, what, some people have asked me, well, I, what does that mean? It's very clear. You submit to God. You, you, he's, he's everything. He's your commander. Lord, whatever you want, my life is yours. Then it reminds you again that we resist the devil. We draw near to God. We, we confess our sin. Some people said, well, I did confess my sin when I came to know Christ. Oh, so you haven't sinned since then? You're pretty amazing. No, we do. But we don't like to talk about that. There's a lot of churches that don't even want to talk about the word sin anymore. It's so, so tragic. But we're all wicked sinners. And we're all saved by grace. And when you understand the depths of your sin and the majesty of our God who loves us, that's all the more likely you do your worship. And you're more likely to want to purify your heart. You more want to walk with him because he designs that for you. He's done it all for us. He's made the way possible. And so then we, we are broken over our sin. It's not just like, well, we talked about this before, the sorry game. I'm sorry, you're sorry, we're sorry. Okay, let's go. No, it's I, I have sinned against you. I was impatient. And please forgive me. I'm striving to be more patient, but I need God's help. Please forgive me. And when it's that truly brokenness, then the path is a 180 return down the road to sinfulness to the idea of going to God and pursuing him in all things. And not just like you see a pattern of someone over and over and over again, well, being impatient, unkind and gracious. There's a problem there. They're either flippant with their sin or they're not a believer at all. Because your sin and my sin should cause us to grieve. The person we've hurt, we've offended our holy God who sees us all, knows us all. He knows our words, our thoughts, our deeds. He numbers the hair on our head. He knows it all. So then we remind ourselves that just regret because you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar is not true repentance. Regret because... Well, we did this. We spent too much money. We knew we shouldn't have been in debt, but we have that and everything else. We shouldn't. That was not, that's, that's not, that's not true repentance. It's just regret. It's a worldly sorrow. But true brokenness over your sin is reminding the God and what he's given you and who you are in him and what it cost him for you to know him, his gift of his son. And so that brings you to your last point. We should always be thinking every moment of every day, this great God who we serve. And I, I referred to, to people to say, if you haven't done that in a while, pick up a book on the attributes of God by Arthur Pink and just go through it again. Trust me, you should never, ever say, well, I know this Jesus. I know that God's eternal, omniscient, immutable, just, rights, eternal. You don't. You don't. We will never grasp this God who right now knows every molecule and every atom in the universe and the stars on their planets and the courses are we'll never grasp our god so we can only really study him why do we can only really study what the scripture has to say and i told the folks here last time because if we don't we make a god of our own choosing and the clearest way i've seen that time and time again when i've shared the gospel with someone and seen what it's about and they say, well, I can't imagine that Jesus would have people in hell. That, that's not Jesus. He's a loving God. Have you read the Gospels lately? 
Read the Gospels and you'll see that Jesus talks about hell and warns about it more than anyone else. He does? Yes, he does. Pick up your Bible. Read it. It's the word of God. It will inform you and it will drive your human reasoning out of your mind so that you can have a godly disposition in the way you live. So we looked at that. We talked about this has got to be our life. If we name the name of Christ, these have to be your eight, eight things that you're constantly working on. We're commanded, not asked, by James chapter 4. So if we are truly going to live by faith, there's your eight principles right there. Ask yourself how you're doing. Test yourself. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says to test yourself. And the nice thing about it is you don't have to come up with your own test. Well, I read the Bible sometimes. Well, I pray over dinner. Thank you, God, for the food. Amen. What kind of test is that? What kind of test is that? Here's the test. It's given to us by our creator. Take the test. And I shared the, with the folks that we were doing a Zoom tech, uh, with the folks uh, up in British Columbia. And we talked about this. And a young man was broken over his sin when we finished. And he went to his mom and they came as a pastor. And uh, his name was Dominique. And I've been praying for Dominique ever since then. But he took the test and he told his mom, I failed. What do I do? That's okay. If you find out you fail, you don't just say, oh, I fail it. I guess I get my F. Really? Don't believe the lies that are out there about hell, that it is only trans transitory, that it's only a soul sleep, that it's, no, the scripture is very clear. You reject the gift of his son. It is not just a purgatory. Someone's going to pray you out by you giving them more money for their church so you get out. No, that's a lie. You will be there forever. And there is a wailing. Some people say, well, hell is just a separation from God. No, it says there's a wailing and gnashing of teeth. You're there forever in wailing and gnashing of your teeth in pain. Well, that's pretty harsh. What kind of God do you serve? You rejected the greatest gift he ever gave his son. And you're telling me that God is harsh. So look at those eight principles. Ask yourself where you stand. If you're going to live by faith, this is what God says to do. But what about growing in grace? What's next? Here's our review. You learn to care for the body of Christ and their unity. And if you see a pattern of sin in someone's life, you go to them and say, hey, this is not what Scripture care does, and I, I care for you. And it's hard. The scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction. So if, if, if disciplining somebody and correcting someone is wrong, then the word of God is wrong too. We got big problems. No. Caring enough about a brother or sister in Christ that has enslaved with a pattern of sin or there's an issue in their life, that shows true love. And again, it begins is that you will not grow in Christ if you do not use the gift that you have and you serve. You will not grow. And, and again, Scripture is very clear. Scripture is very clear. It tells us the story of a man that he was given a gift and then went away and he came back and everybody invested it and got this much. Someone else invested it and got something this. And what did you do? Oh, I put it in the ground, Master, so that it would not be. You worthless servant. So if we're not finding some way to serve the body of Christ, we need to do that. And then, this is my biggest challenge, and I've told people that. Missy will tell you this as well. I was in the military for a number of years, and she said, you can take the man out of the military, but you can't take out the military out of the man. And my philosophy is an Air Force guy bombs on target. Let's go. 
Besides, fly, fly your dude, drop your bombs, get back to the officer's club. You know, let's go. That's what we do. But God says, I have to be patient. And he spelled it specifically, I have to be patient. And so if we are going to be patient with one another, that means you're going to have to die to the things that you want. And that's the challenge. So we reviewed this up for the point, bring you guys up to speed. We live by faith. We grow in grace. And the beauty of this issue about growing in grace, we will not grow in grace if we don't follow these areas. We're going to be stunted in our growth. And I know you don't want to be stunted in your growth, and I don't want to be stunted in growth. I want to meet my Savior, and I want him to be pleased with what he's given to me, everything. So let's go back now forward and move forward. A quick review. Let's look at this. <clears throat> this question you may not see. Sorry, it's a little bit there. There's this big debate among theologians about joy and happiness. But I think the one thing that's been brought out is decide where your joy comes from. Where, what, what is it that makes you, drives you? Is it because I'm going to be an OBGYN nurse someday? Is it because I got more money in the bank? Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. You guys remember his name. But he uh, had millions of dollars back in the 30s. And someone asked him, how much do you need? How much more do you need? Just one dollar more. What drives you in the world that you live? And it's either joy, which is eternal in the living God and what he wants you to do, or it is a happiness. And I was looking at my coffee cup, and I left it back there from Starbucks, and it says... Just one sip is joy. I thought, yeah, until it's all gone, now what is it? Yeah. There goes my coffee. And in our family, we've got a lot of those issues about uh, coffee. So it's interesting enough, as you point this out, before we get into this, this position of a servant, if you look with me in James chapter 1, we'll read those first four verses, first four verses and we'll talk about it. And you'll see it right off the bat. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The U.S. was ranked 13 as the happiest country overall, according to a Gallup report. Uh, reported together by the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. And basically, the United States was a decliner. There used to be much more happiness at a point in time. And it sends a strong message to a country that's very rich and often got richer over 50 years, but there's no more happier. I was talking to our friend here, uh, and she was talking about what she sees in America, too, and so many people so unhappy. And she remembers what it's like in her country and what we have. And that's our nation. There's an economist by the name uh, of Jay Sox who said, for society that chases money, we're chasing the wrong things. Our social fabric is deteriorating, our social trust is deteriorating, and in addition, so is our faith. J.A. Marshall, a Christian Mar uh, writer, he says this, joy is often presented as a true contentment based on faith, but happiness in contrast is often thought as false. But it's not. There's a joy and there is a happiness. And there's nothing wrong with happiness. The problem is, where does it come from? Where does your happiness derive? Where does your joy derive? That's the issue. And so we're going to be looking at that very clearly. And um, Hebrews 11.25, it says this. 
the fleeting pleasures of sin. There is joy as part of the fruit of the Spirit. There's a temporary happiness, but the joy is eternal. And Ecclesiastes, our friend there, you guys know who the writer of Ecclesiastes was, one of the smartest men that ever lived. His name was Solomon. And he said, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But it proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I found out, as I dwelt in the world, was madness. What pleasure did it accomplish? And that's the world we live in, looking for pleasure over and over again in the happiness of the world and finding emptiness. It will fade. But God's people, with their heart and what God's accomplishing, how he's happening, will have that joy that you will possess. So let's kind of move from this failures of temporal happiness to this sometimes forgotten eternal disposition of joy and say, why, why then would Scripture talk so much about joy? If you researched it, you would find out that there's some 463 references in joy in some capacity. God's very clear what it is. And we are like this log over here knocking on knocking on wood. Hello, McFly, anybody home up there? I mean, we're not getting it. This joy is, is, is critical in the scripture. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And David says, restore my joy of my salvation. Psalm 51. So joy surrounds the birth of the Messiah. The angels proclaim good news with great joy. And again, Luke states that the angels rejoice. There's joy in heaven, it says in Luke 15. When one sinner repents, not happiness, there's this eternal joy over eternal mindset. So Paul, with other New Testament writers, said there's no paradox here. Look at, look at Paul and Silas. They're in the stocks in the Philippian jail. They've been beaten. So sometimes we, we rush through this and we don't think about that. But when you're in stocks, leg here, leg here, arm here, and you're like this, really comfortable. And the fact that you've been beaten, whatever's, whatever lacerations are on your back, I'm, a, I'm not the doctor, but I know that would not be, and now it's stretched out. And you're in pain. Good gracious. But yet, we read this in Acts 16. They're singing hymns. And not only are they singing and rejoicing, but they said they're waiting for the morning magistrate's judgment. Well, it's probably going to be, kill them! But they're singing. In fact, it even tells us the whole prison's like, what is that? What is going on down there? How do you have that joy? How does, this, how does that work? How do I, how do I ma maintain that joy amidst struggling and difficulties and hardships? Well, let's go look at Scripture. Again, John 8 says, you know the truth. The truth will set you free. God will give us the truth that will allow us to have joy in all things. And one of the first things that we're looking at is you have to learn to develop a disposition of a servant. It's the opening words. I passed this over when I was doing the exegesis years ago. 
And I just bypassed that. James, a servant of God. But he is going to tell us very clearly, if you have the mindset of a servant, it's going to change the way you look. It's going to change the way we look at others. One theologian by the name of, one of my favorite, D. Evan Heber, he says, the opening words of James, or I'm like an unexpected bugle call. Okay. What's this note? It's a heroic note. It's a charge. He says he urges the readers to assume a joyous attitude in their trials. Go. Don't just like, woe is me. Life is not good. Gotta wear a mask. Gotta stay six feet away. Lost my job. Don't have this. Really. And we name the name of Christ. We're no different than the rest of the world. How sad that is. I was talking to someone in the back of the room, which I won't mention his name, but we're talking about, yes, and we might have that, and God would call us home. Hallelujah, I'm ready to go. We both said that, hallelujah, together. It's like, yep, we're ready to go home, fine. So so how do you get there? You have a disposition of, of a servant. It's something that you would see yourself that you are a slave of Jesus Christ. That's your whole desire. That's what you're about. You're willing to commit yourself to your master in everything, what he asks you to do. It's almost back to that submitting to him again. You see that servant. Be a servant of the living God. And there's really two perspectives on this being a servant. The first one is you're exclusively owned. So that's one of your blanks on your thing. You're exclusively owned. Have the mindset of the fact that if you gave your mind and heart and soul to Jesus Christ, I am his. I'm his disciple first and foremost. That's what I am. Who are you? Describe yourself. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. No, I work at this place. No, I'm this husband. No, I live here in Gainesville. No, I, no, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's how you describe yourself. That's what you are. You were bought with a price. He owns you now. And that's what you think about. That's the first thing you think about. This is my master. Not because I have to toil and strain, but because he loves me so much that I, it's, my life is yours, Lord. Paul states this very clear in 1 Corinthians 3.23. You belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. You're, you're his. Do you see yourself that way? Do you view yourself the way you are exclusively owned? Well, what else does a servant do? It's pretty clear. This one's a simple one, but you have to be useful to your master. If your master asks you to do something and you don't say, maybe tomorrow I'll get it the next day. I know we've all seen this and we've all been a part of that. Sometimes it's a little bit surprising. I heard you talk about it earlier, Brandon. But you're, you're going to some kind of store and you're looking for something or you're looking for some help. Uh, we had to cancel several different our trips during the COVID and trying to get refunds and trying to work it out. And we would call or we'd do something and go find it yourself. Look down there. Well, I, I can't find it. Maybe tomorrow you can come back. I mean, I don't know who else to talk to. Let me put you on hold. Three hours later, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And yet, if you think about it, we are the servants of our great God. And so we should rush to do what he asks us to do in full obedience. Example? Job, we are called to be doers, in verse 22, of the word, 
And Job comes to our mind. He's minding his own business. He's serving the Lord. He's loving God, walking his ways, raising his family, enjoying the fruit of all his efforts. But in the realm, beyond Job's perception, a conversation happens between God and Satan. Kind of like this. Satan says to God, Yep, I want to take a swing at your servant Job. Okay, God says, He's not going to let that happen. (laughs) And God says, Yep, have Adam. Job will never forget that day. In rapid succession, they bring bad news after bad news. The bearers of the bad news have seen each other sprinting across the field to Job's house. Out of the breath, rocked with grief, none of the messengers were able to finish the report before the last one was cut off another one in mid-sentence, running as fast as he can. And they're breathing. Hey, your first servant says your auctions, your, your, your donkeys, they, they, they've been stolen. Okay. And the second one comes in. Lightning has killed your sheep and your shepherds. Okay. I'm right behind him. Get out of my way. Hey, you know, the Chaldeans, they've taken your camera, camels and they, they killed your keepers and the people who are watching him. Wow. Okay. Just a second. And bam. This is the fourth one. This is the hard one. Job and his wife braced themselves. Your sons and your daughters were killed when a great wind came. And blew down the four corners of the house. Some conjectures have been that it's all this happened within about a 45 second period. Kabam! 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 And then the scripture tells us after hearing all these things, then Job rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and cursed God no. and worshiped. And his thoughts were clearly written down here for us. The oldest book in the Bible, Job. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave me, and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job 1, verses 21 and 22. It wasn't that he had deep, deep feelings of happiness. This is great. Lost everything. Lost my children. I'm having a great day. But his dependence, his trust, his service was to one that he knew was righteous. And the just, Malachi says, we live by faith. So we begin with this first issue. If you want to look what joy looks like in your life, if you want to be able to love other people by being a joyful believer in Christ, are you a servant? Now, we, we joked about people and they were teasing me yesterday, which I like to be a tease, and I tease right back. People already know that. They've already figured that out. But whenever we go to places and conferences or do something, I always like to clear off people's places. Why do I do that? Well, not just because I'm impatient to get on the next event. That's part of it. <laughs> But it's also because I remind myself, I am but a servant. And do you view yourself that way? When you see somebody, it was so nice, we had a handful of wood. I was coming in the door with me and I, and Gloria rushes to the door to open up the door for us. She could have just sat there, they get the door themselves. No, but she came and opened the door for us. It was, it was nice. 
Do you see yourself looking around and saying, how can I serve somebody? What can I do for them? If you're a disciple of Christ, that's your mentality. So now we move to our second disposition, the deliberation of a theologian. Biblical theologians have the complex job of thinking about and debating about the nature of God as he reveals about scriptures and being out way away we can communicate that to understand that. And if you've studied scriptures, if you've done the work at all that entails, uh, Brandon will tell you, um, I get so buried in what I'm doing. I, Missy came, she went somewhere and we've gone for three hours and came back and I was still sitting there working on what I'm thinking about everything else. And she said, how are you doing? Oh, I'm still on point one. I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm lost in splendor about this God and what he's doing and praying and thinking and whatever. But you should deliberate about this God that we serve. Well, how do I go about doing that? Well, you know and remember God and everything that you do. From the moment we said this yesterday, when you get up in the morning, do you say, Lord, thank you? Or if you're thinking, I got to get to breakfast, I got to get to work, I got this, that. Or do you think, Lord, you, you gave me my breath this morning. You gave me light. I mean, all that I have is yours. Do you begin that deliberation of a theologian that remember that all that you have here is because of what you have? And you should never, ever grow weary of thinking, my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Why? Because I toiled, I strained, I worked, and I got there? No. Because a gracious, merciful God justified you from the work of his son on the cross. Now, I, I think about this a lot. Missy will tell you I think a lot about it all the time. And I love people. And I have four, four children, two boys and two girls, and my oldest son is Matt. But I, I thought about this sometime. When I say to my son, Matt, Matt, you go on that cross you stay there and watch what will happen. I'm saying, forget it. Let him die. I don't care about those people. Seriously. Honestly, my son on the cross. But our God said, this is the way. And I will send you. And it was not easy. Look at the garden of sin to me. Look at Jesus. Don't just gloss over that. And besides that, he has to deal with these bonehead disciples who are sleeping. He finally asked them, please pray with me. Help me. And he's praying, he's agonizing. He goes over there and he looks over there. There they are. I was like, really? And what does he tell them? I know what I would have told them. It would have been a kick in the tail and get up. And he didn't say that. He says, you, you need to be praying because you don't, lest you sin. He's concerned about them. He's going to the cross and he's worried about them. Unbelievable. So do you know and remember this God that you serve? Is he part of your life? If you don't go there, you're not going to be able to count it all joys and trials. Because what's going to end up happening in your life is you're going to have a horizontal view instead of a vertical view. And that horizontal view is going to say, well, they're not. This is not happening here. This is not the way I plan it. These aren't my expectations. Missy will be the first one to tell you over the last year we've had more things happen than we can ever imagine in our 41 years of marriage. Unbelievable. But I remind myself every time I want to grasp that and say, really, God? I think, well, you know what? I'm yours. You do what you want. Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. We're never minimizing this idea that just think it's just really simple things. And we just have this attitude of, help, you know, just joy. It's a struggle. We have to take that thought captive. 
But that's what we do. And I go back to the scriptures, go back to the scriptures. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. The Greek word there is count as hegemai. It's a regard or a deliberation. It's a musing. You think, well, I wanted this, but this doesn't happen. What's right or wrong? Well, obviously my point is wrong. Okay, what does God say? What does God say? I go back to the word, back to the word, back to the word. We are commanded to have a conscious consideration of these trials. They're there. No one's denying the troubles and hardships that you see. Neither am I. But we are responded joyfully. We are called to respond. That's our, that's our, okay, Lord, I don't get it, but I know that you're charged. I can trust you. It is not easy. If you leave here today and say, this guy talked about joy, and he said, that was easy, you missed the whole point. Hello? It is hard. You will, we'll talk about this in a little bit. It's going to be difficult. But we learn from Hebrews 13, 21, he will equip us with everything good to do his will, working in us that is which pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So a right relationship with a living holy God of the universe and a promise of eternal heaven is incomparably priceless to all the things of this world. And so we count on this, we think about this, and remember that the worldview that we have as believers is rational. It's deliberate. It makes sense. It contains no contradictions, no errors. It's rationally. People today are taught to glorify contradiction, to embrace that which is absurd, or prefer that which is subjective. Let their feelings rather than their intellect control their actions. Has God created us with rational beings, says theologians John Scott, and we shall deny thinking through what humans have and who God is? Has God removed your, renewed your mind through Christ? Then you should be thinking of him. So joy is experienced through Christ by a deliberation, a knowledge about who God is and what he is. And we get that not by our own, our own ideas who God is, but we get that by the word of God. Again, I have stored your word in my heart that I would not sin against you. Psalm 119.11 The more that we read the word, deliberate the word, examine the word, the more that we hide the word. I told the group yesterday, my wife embarrasses me about how much she's been looking at. I think you're in First Peter, right? She got all these hundreds of verses and I came back with one day because I was probably feeling a little guilty. Yes, I got John 11.35 down though. Jesus wept, so there, so I got that one. She looked at me like, okay, so, uh, so the, the, do, you, do you enjoy the word? Do you take the word in? Psalm 6410 says, let the righteous is one and rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all upright in heart exalt God. So you, this, this joy that we have, it's deliberative. It's thinking. It's rejoicing in what God has done for you. Psalm 42.4 says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I will go with the throng and I will lead them in a procession to the house of God. Or we would say, someday I will be with my Lord in heaven and I will rejoice. This, this, I'm done. I will be there someday. So this passion to live out with each day, this joy knowing that God's in, in charge. That's so significant. Even if I'm to be poured out of the drink offering, Philippians 2.17 says, upon the sacrifice 
I am glad and I will rejoice. Is that your disposition? No matter what happens, trials, tribulations, heartaches, traumas, you're a believer in Christ? Or do you trust in the worldliness of happiness? So joy has found the crowd. And the next one we're going to be looking at is one of my favorites. I have to tell you that. It is the 1924 Olympics. And it's hosted by people in Paris. I talked a little bit about this before. And there's a devout Christian by the name of Eric Little. He refused to run on his heat held on a Sunday. and was forced to withdraw, forced to withdraw from the 100-meter race of his best event. So he petitioned the English and said, Can I please do another race. They said, well, yeah, you can do the 400 meter. We can get you into that one. It's kind of embarrassing for us. We had, to, we had to tell the Frenchies, English and French, they've always kind of gone at it. We had to ask them to do that. So they were all embarrassed. But he is now in the outside lane. He is now doing a 400 meter event with world-class athletes, and he's used to doing the 100 meters. He can't see what's going on with the race. He raced the first 200 meters clear of it of everybody. He's doing the best as he can, and he was in the front. He had little option to do but just run in the best that he could. He went out all that he could. He's now down the straightaway, and he would go on to win. And I told the group last night, if you ever watched that movie, he used to unnerve his coach because he would run his hard. He'd get everything that he had. He trained. He worked. And then what would happen? What would happen next? And then he would lean his head back. And they're like, what is he doing? If you know anything about running, that's not going to get you to the finish line. But Eric was more concerned that Christ be glorified. So a little option then to treat the race as a complete sprint. He does, and he wins. He broke the Olympic, set the world record. He's now a gold medal winner. And people say he could go anywhere and do anything. He's a gold medal winner. No. He goes back to northern China as a missionary. And in 1941, life in China had become extremely dangerous because of Japanese aggression. The British government advised British nationals to leave. Eric sends his family home. But he stayed. The Japanese took over the mission station and Little was interned at the Weihaisen internment camp. With members of the China Inland Mission and many others. He became a leader and organized the camp. But food, medicine, supplies were scarce. In the last letter to his home, to his wife, written on the day he died, Little wrote of suffering, debilitating headaches. He had an operable brain tumor. He died on 21st February, 1945, five months before the liberation. In his letter, he wrote to his wife, as he was dying. Wherever I go, I decide to bring people nearer to Christ. I believe God made me for a purpose. And he made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. But you know as much as I know, what gives me more pleasure is to tell people about my Jesus. There you go. A combination of both a servant, but understanding 
that this third quality that we need for joy is this determination of an athlete. We have to strive. We have to strain. We have to press. There has to be agonizing. We can't have laziness. It's hard to be in this sin-soaked world to be a believer. I know that you do too. James 3 says that we, for you know that testing your faith produces steadfastness. We won't bend, bow, or budge as we look at our Jesus and what he does. No matter what may happen, we will stand and not be afraid. Paul is clear on this point. Again, Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press that I may lay hold of that which laid hold of me in Christ Jesus. Do you do that each day? Do you strive, strain, and press to kill sin, to serve other people, to think biblically the word of God? Do you chase after Jesus Christ by saying, Lord, my life's yours. I want you. I say, do you, Eric Little, (laughs) when you look at your life? You see, our joy is found in our faith And when the heavy load and when the strain comes and the trials come, what we so often want to do is get me out of here. I lost count how many people I heard him say, yeah, but when 2020 is over and 2021, it's going to be a great year. Really? Really? That's what you're hoping for? Whatever 2021 brings, that's fine. But I hope in 2021 that I will not lose my joy. And it's hard. Contrary to every fiber of our human being is this idea to be joyful amidst difficulties. We have to bear up. Martin Luther captured this idea beautifully. He said, we'll let us go down a blazing torch in the depths of our nature. We'll illuminate our true heart during trouble and times. And we will see many things that we didn't expect. Sin that's there, expectations that we wanted, our own life to live. We will find weak faith when we thought it was strong. And we will find our eternal focus on God dim during trials when we should have been bright. James has much more to say about this athletically inspired type of endurance. And let steadfast have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete. So what's the reward for striving, for straining, and pressing? being complete, not leaving anything behind. You see, our sanctification, we're justified by Christ alone, by grace alone, and Him alone, but our sanctification, God designed it to be this way. We have to strain to grow in Christ. And you've met it, many people I have as well. Some people think that growth in Christ is a chronological. Well, I'm 40, so I must be more mature than you. I've met too many people that are 90, they're about as immature as my grandchildren when it comes to knowing who Christ is and what it is. It's in the time in the word, times time, and living out what God calls us to do. That's when the reward comes. That first clause there, it says that the athlete wins a prize. It's a double purpose cause. There's this idea of what you will gain. Positively, we endure. We can keep going on. It's a progressive attainment. We accomplish each step. God provides us opportunity for growth. The richness and the knowledge of character of our Jesus as we walk with him. Again, we go back to 1 Peter. We looked at this before. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you may follow his steps. 
not perfection, but a determination to live out this faith that God's given you. You want to complete what God began in you. It's a classic Greek signal. It's a turning point. You were, maybe you were content just like, okay, Jesus did this. And we have that song, Jesus did it all. He did in terms of our justification. But in our sanctification, we must complete what God has started in us. There's one stage and it goes to another stage. It clearly demonstrated in the last words we hear from Jesus on the cross in John 19, 30. He says, it is finished. From the negative perspective, the second purpose clause states this, that there will be joy for difficulties. Nothing will be left behind. No area of godly maturity. Nothing should fail to reach its goal. No part of our faith should fail to develop. It is a resolute determination during these trials. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Who for the joy set before him. This is our Jesus. He's our example. We talked to you about last time. This is that new love. Well, how can it be new in the Old Testament when Deuteronomy 6 said that we should love our Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? What's the new love? We have it in Jesus, a sacrificial love. And here we see it. Jesus, the joy. Get that? Hello? Say after me. Joy. joy. One more time. Joy. joy. The joy set before him. He endured the cross. Really? Despising the shame sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And we are called to consider such as one as our Jesus. He had such hostility against sinners that he was willing to die for them. And we are called not to grow weary or lose heart. So to have biblical joy during difficulties, we must have the disposition of a servant of God the liberation of a theologian, think on things that are lovely and true and right and true is in the scriptures, not your own thinking. The determination of an athlete, do I seek to obey no matter what happens? Do I take thought captive no matter how hard things are? Truly, truly, I say to you, our servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are them if you do them. John 13 is very clear. So I'm going to leave these questions with you. One thing. It's a deliberate theologian. He'll say, one thing that I ask you, that I will ask the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate on his temple. Is that your heart? As a determined athlete, I'll ask you a question. Do you have one thing you do? Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. I forget what lies behind. I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward this goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3. So, there you have it. It's there for you. What will you do when you find yourself in a challenging, difficult, demanding situation? What will you do? Whine, complain, moan, quit? Or will you say, Lord, I'm yours. Hallelujah. What a great God we serve. What a great God we serve. And before we pray and close our time, I'm going to ask Missy again and Miss Emily to come up and I ask you all to stand again. And we will be singing the doxology. If you don't know that, listen carefully to the words. 
and you hear these beautiful words, and that's why we want to always end with this doxology. And so um, I don't sing worth anything. So Missy will tell you that, and these two do. So let's go. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let me pray before we go. Dear Father, help us. We are slow to learn. We are prone to wander. We forget. We are often weak to climb the hills of disappointments and even the mountains of despair. We find ourselves exhausted. We fail to remember the joy set before us. Our pain hearts don't show compassion. Maybe we're even pierced by prayerless days. Our little puny hearts have been devoted of love. We've lost that as poverty. We're laziness when we think about the race that you've given us. So we pray, Lord, make our joy to study you, to meditate on you, to gaze upon you, to be wondered, be like Mary and sit at your feet, be like Peter with all our love and Paul to count all things as worthless apart from you. Cause us to remember that even though we have a position in this world, the worldly position is not our possession. It's not our home. So we pray, Lord, rule and reign in our hearts King of kings, Lord of lords, that we would live victoriously. And we thank you for all the riches of your grace and the depth of your wisdom so that we can glorify you in all that we do. In the name of your Son and our Master, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you and enjoy your day. Good. And I think this is supposed to go. Okay. Thank you.